My name is Rudy Hartman. I, uh, I get to be on staff here with Doxa, uh, and I'm so glad to get to open up the scriptures with you this morning. Uh, we are going to be continuing our series through Galatians. So if you have a Bible with you, you turn your phone on, whatever, Galatians chapter 2. We made it out of chapter 1, guys. You did it. Okay, we are going to be continuing Galatians chapter 2 uh, this morning. Before I, I, I do that, though, I want to give you a quick update on our SALT Global teams. You can throw that on the screen. Uh, this summer, we're going to be sending 10... That's sweet. Uh, this summer, we're going to be sending 10 of our college students to be overseas for about six weeks. Uh, the six on this side will be with our Japan... Our Japan uh, I call them the Japan of God. Okay, no, uh, with the <laughs> Japan church team. And over here, uh, I can't tell you their name because I got to say South Asia, but come find me and I'll tell you, I've got a great name for them too. Um, so I, uh, I, I love these, these people so much. They were this last weekend in Minneapolis uh, where we're sending as a network 295 students overseas this summer. So would encourage you to do two things, or I just want to say two things to you real quick. One, uh, for our teams that are here, uh, I want to say thank you for giving. Um, your giving to Doxa Church helps support their uh, fundraising. They're fundraising 90% and Doxa's putting up 10% of their, their trip. So I want to say thank you for giving. Your money given is going to the gospel uh, going overseas. And number two, I just ask you to pray for them, that they'd have a fruitful and faithful ministry overseas this summer. Um, and if you ever have had the chance to go overseas, or, or maybe if you've just invested your life and time in a place that you know that you'll eventually leave, then you know that doing something like that does something to you. There's a care and a love that develops over that time that's difficult to explain or quantify other than to say that you deeply long for that people and that place to come to know and continue to know and follow after Jesus. And that like difficult to describe affection is precisely what Paul, the author of the letter to the church at Galatia, feels for the churches in this region of Galatia. Galatia is a really interesting book in the scriptures for several reasons, but one way that you could think about it is as a missionary document. He is, he's writing a letter to a region of churches that he established, and he's writing it to help them because he ultimately cares deeply for them. So before we hop into the scripture, I just don't want you to run too quickly past the emotional context of where we're going this morning. Paul is writing with what I would call a pained longing for the church of Galatia. I wonder if you in this room have ever felt like that pained longing, that desire of something for someone before, when you just want someone around you to, to understand so badly that what they're doing is destroying them and will destroy them, and that there is another better way of life available to them. Parents, maybe you've felt that for your children. Children, maybe you've felt that for your parents. Students, for your friends, likely all of us for someone, that pained longing for these people that you love. And in the context of Paul's writing, you need to understand Galatians is a letter of correction. And Paul's correction is actually coming from this pained longing, this deep place of compassion. He wants them to align their lives with the preserved gospel of Jesus Christ, but he's heard that they're running to another gospel. 
And so he writes this letter so they might return to the preserved gospel and not fall prey to another one. And Doxa, I need you to just hear it again. The reason that we are studying this letter for the next like three months is so that we also might be rooted in the preserved gospel and not fall prey to another one. That's where we're going this morning to, to really lay that out. And before we get even into the text, we need to do a little bit of work up front. So lock in with me here for a second. Earlier in the letter... Uh, Paul writes that he is pained to hear that they've run to another gospel. And then he says, interestingly, he says, not that there is another one. You need to understand that while he's saying that, he's making clear what Sean said from this very stage. There isn't another true gospel that Jesus is the way. There's no other way for you to be saved from your sin and restored into relationship with God except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. There's no other true gospel that will save you. But there are other Gospels. There are false Gospels. So let's do a little work here. Gospel, the word, is not originally a Christian word. A gospel historically was often proclaimed throughout a region at the ascension of a new leader. It was the declaration of good news that this new ruler was now in charge and that that had some benefit or impact on your life, which meant you were to now orient your life around them as your new ruler. A gospel then is the story of a ruler or an influence and what it promises you if you orient your life around it. There's many examples of this outside of the church. Every political party preaches a gospel. Every substance that you could use preaches a gospel. The Western dream of upward mobility preaches a gospel. The advertisements and influencers and podcasts you listen to functionally preach a gospel. They lay out a way of life and make you a promise if you orient yourself around it. This is how you can experience life. This is how you can escape or or be saved. This is how you can be free. And none of them deliver. None of these in and of themselves actually lead to life, actually lead to salvation, actually lead to freedom. All they do if these other things become the orienting part of your life, orienting point of your life, is enslave you deeper and deeper to themselves. That's outside of the church. What about from within the church? This is the kind of other gospel that the church of Galatia is facing. Not one from outside of the church, but one from inside of the church. It's what we'll call, you could write this down if you're taking notes, it's what we'll call a preferential gospel. The preferential gospel or a preferential gospel is one that can look and sound a whole lot like the gospel of Jesus Christ, but can often have a few things attached to it that are additional, that are extra And for some reason, these things become the hammer that strikes the nail and determines whether you were in or out based on this preference. These preferences can vary from practices to position to politics to whatever, but it's important to note that having preferences is different than having a preferential gospel. Some preferences, short of sinful ones, aren't bad. They're innocuous. You simply have a preference. You're a human being. You have likes and dislikes. This isn't a demand towards uniformity, but to charitable unity within a diversity of likes and dislikes that Christians can find unity within. The problem comes when preferences are elevated to become a part of the gospel or when preferences are used as a fence or a barrier to the gospel. What can happen is the preferential gospel sounds like this. Hey, you know, real Christians do this. 
Real Christians think like, real Christians vote this way. Essentially, they're saying that if you don't do or think or whatever like I prefer, that means you're not really a Christian. Now, when you follow Jesus, hear me, when you follow Jesus, there are things that you will start to do and think and act and love that align with the way of Jesus. That's called discipleship. If he has saved you, he will shape you as you follow after him in obedience to his teaching. Where the preferential gospel does is it demands certain moral absolutes where there is no biblical basis for them in the gospel or life of Jesus Christ. The preferential gospel adds to and corrupts what Paul in our text calls the preserved gospel. The preserved gospel is the story of the finished work of King Jesus and it promises that the only way for you to be saved from your sin and have eternal union with God now and forever is through him and his finished work through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. The preserved gospel can be seen across the scriptures in multiple places. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where Paul says we were dead in our sin, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for us and which he has loved us with, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with him in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 13, sorry, chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which is the perfect or required sacrifice for our sin, by his blood to be received by faith. Or John 3.16, from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself, that God so loved the world that he gave He sent his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Preserved gospel. I'll throw it up on the screen so you can kind of see it here. Uh, The preserved gospel is this. Very basic, very simple. Sinners are saved by Christ alone. Now see if you can spot the difference. The preferential gospel is this. Sinners are saved by Jesus and blank. That blank is the preference. And if that preference isn't there, are you a real Christian? That blank is where the preserved gospel gets corrupted and replaced with another one. Now the question I'm asking you this morning isn't simply, do I follow a preferential gospel? Maybe you do need to ask that. But I want us all to consider a broader question. I want you to consider if there is any preference you might have that you might be tempted to elevate and create a preferential gospel around. Anything you might be tempted to say, I'm going to lift that up to be as important as Jesus Christ in relation to salvation. Said another way, perhaps, what preference do I need to resist by rooting myself in the preserved gospel of Jesus Christ? For Paul's audience here in Galatians... The answer to that is very simple. They need to resist the preferential gospel of the Judaizers that is spreading like wildfire across the churches in Galatia. See, the Judaizers' uh, preferential gospel would have sounded like this. Real Christians are saved by Jesus and by keeping the Jewish traditions. The sign of this that they were pushing specifically among these new Gentile believers, Gentile simply meaning non-Jewish, is that of circumcision. 
A very brief breakdown of circumcision. You'd find it in Genesis 17 and then all throughout the scriptures as a part of the story of God. Circumcision was initially a sign of the covenant between the Jewish people and God. If you were Jewish, you would be circumcised. This remained the sign of the covenant for Jewish people as a part of the Jewish law. Now, as I say that about the law, it's important to note that we're not antinomian. The law is not discarded at the coming of Christ. It's not like New Testament only, Old Testament bad. That's not what we do here. The law was and is still deeply valuable in that it reveals the moral protection and caring nature of a God who would give it, and it exposes our inability to perfectly keep it, thus indicating our need for salvation as lawbreakers, just to be forgiven, for someone to be a sacrifice for our sin in our place. But this law cannot save, only Jesus does. So the story of God continues and leads us to Jesus, who comes and fulfills the law through his perfect life and becomes that perfect sacrifice for all who trust in him, for all who have sinned and broken the law to be forgiven and saved by Jesus. So we are now under a new covenant in Christ. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ, not through our works of obedience to the law. So, circumcision we need to understand, is not an issue if salvation was only for the Jewish people because it was a Jewish practice. But thankfully, for everybody in this room that's not Jewish, uh, the scriptures show us that salvation is not just for one ethnicity, but for all people through Christ. Just one example from the Old Testament. Isaiah 49, verse 6, God speaks through Isaiah about Jesus and says this, It's too light a thing that you, speaking of Jesus, who would come, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too light a thing to just save Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see that theme throughout the New Testament. This is incredible. God is saying through Isaiah that to only save the Jewish nation, to only save Jacob would be too light a thing. If I could just do this real quick, uh, it's light work for God to do that. Like that's what he's saying. Like, it's just, it's light work for him. He said, uh, I'm actually going to go beyond that. Now I'm Sending my servant savior to be a light for the nations so salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then it does. Like <laughs> the gospel comes from one town to another, to the next, to the next, all the way into Galatia, to the Galatians. And it's at this moment that we're faced with a conundrum. Well, those who are not Jewish in their ethnicity need to maintain this Jewish practice of circumcision. And if they don't, can they call themselves followers of the way of Jesus or Christians? This would actually be the focus of the very first church council in Acts 15. Go read that on your own time. Who uh, determined that circumcision is unnecessary and the Gentile believers are free to be Christians without keeping this Jewish sign of circumcision. The result is that Gentile and Jewish believers are what they were always intended to be, a diverse, multicultural body of believers in Jesus Christ. Here's the problem. There's a group of people who are demanding a culturally rooted tradition, circumcision, as the means by which you determine if someone was a real Christian. That sinners are saved by Jesus and through circumcision. And with this preference, they disrupted the churches by demanding their preference. It is textbook preferential gospel. 
just like all the things that we may demand of other Christians in addition to Christ to prove to us that they're saved, our textbook preferential gospel. The result is that the churches are not free in Christ. They're enslaved to the control of these Judaizers, and they're enslaved to this preferential false other gospel. So what does Paul do? What will the missionary who cares for and loves this church he started do? In his compassion, he will begin the work of correction. Paul will address this preferential gospel and expose it for what it is. Another gospel, not the preserved gospel of Jesus Christ. And he will lay out the framework by which we should also approach any preferential gospel. Not only that we are threatened to follow after, but even that we see arise within ourselves. Here's how we'll do it. Three steps. Step one, he'll go back to the source. Step two, he'll expose its intent. And step three, he will respond accordingly. Now we're in Galatians 2. (laughs) I hope that was enough time to get there. It should have been. Um, (laughs) Galatians 2, verses 1 through 2. Step 1, you go back to the source. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because I had a revelation, and I set it before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. I I set before them the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So here's what Paul does briefly. He goes back to the source and says, well, not because anybody asked me to, but in response to a revelation I had from God, I went to Jerusalem, which is the epicenter not only of Jewish life, but of Christianity at the time. And I talked to some of the pillars of the church, he'd go on to say. People of authority, of influence. I ran by them. Hey, this is how I preach the gospel. Would you legit check it for me so that I don't run in vain? And they approved me. Paul's appealing to the authority of the Jerusalem church, the followers of Jesus who were in the heart of Jewish life. If there are any people who could correct Paul or would correct Paul and what he was preaching about the gospel and how he was making disciples, it would be these guys. Further, some of these leaders were disciples that had literally walked with Jesus. That's a pretty authoritative source. But Paul says they approved the gospel I was teaching. That's huge for the Galatians. And so is the implication of verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Please don't miss what Paul is saying here. He's saying, Galatia, I took a literal uncircumcised Greek man into Jerusalem with me, and they didn't make me circumcise him. So why on earth would you listen to these spies who have come in to lie about you, with the, lie to you with their preferential gospel, and demand something of you that the leaders in the Jewish epicenter of life and Christianity didn't demand of Titus? Christianity would be a multi cultural body of believers with multicultural leaders and it still is this would have really infuriated the judaizers but titus would go on to be a pastor of a church in crete We're going but by going back to the source and appealing to authority paul is confronting the preferential gospel of the judaizers in a skillful way He's saying that their requirement to be circumcised, to add this preferential thing to be a Christian, their preference is not legitimate nor required by the authorities in Jerusalem, and so it should be discarded. Their preference is corrupting the gospel and disturbing the church. Paul goes back to the source, but then he does something interesting. You thought he was done there. 
She, okay. Uh, step two, he exposes their intent. Verse four, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, that they might bring us into slavery. See what Paul just did? He exposed their intent. And in so doing, he exposed the intent of every preferential gospel. The intent of every preferential gospel is to bring you into slavery to the preference. To trap you in it. And it's not only to the preference itself, but to the authority of the one who is demanding it. Paul sees this preferential gospel as enslaving the people of Galatia to a way of life that is marked more by following this men who are proliferating this gospel than by following Jesus. There's already someone who said, follow me. He died and rose again. Why are you telling me to follow him differently? Like, it doesn't line up. It doesn't make sense. This is the intent of the Judaizers, to enslave the churches of Galatia to their preference. And they're using a preferential gospel to do it. They're manipulating the gospel as a means of legitimizing their preference through an avenue of power to enslave the churches. So what does Paul say? After going to the source and identifying their intent, step three tells them how to respond accordingly. Verse five, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And it's here that we start to see why Paul is so pained and forceful in writing this letter. Because the churches of Galatia have started to yield. They have started to consider this other gospel. And this gospel that Paul has been entrusted with to go to the Gentiles, it seems to have been supplanted by another gospel. So Paul tells them what he did so that they would understand what they should do. We didn't yield for even a second. We didn't give an inch to these spies who came in to enslave. We didn't entertain it for a moment because we knew that we were to preserve the truth of the gospel for you. So we didn't yield. As Paul writes this letter, do not miss it, to dismantle the false gospel that these people are following by going back to the source, exposing the intent of the Judaizers to enslave the people to this preference, and then show them how they are to live in response in light of the preserved gospel of Jesus Christ so that they might not yield for even a moment to this preferential gospel that will trap them and kill them. Why? Why does he go so hard so quickly? For the same reason that if a cruise ship has a tablespoon of motor oil poured into the fresh water supply, everybody gets poisoned and the ship has to immediately come back to port because just a little bit can corrupt. An inch can become a thousand miles over time. So, Doxa, when we face a preferential gospel, we do the same. We go back to the source, to the preserved gospel. We identify the preferences uh, intent to enslave us, and we do not yield to it for even a second. See, Paul writes to the Galatians to free them from this destructive preferential gospel and to root them in the preserved gospel of Jesus Christ. And Doxa, this is why we are studying this letter. A preferential gospel will mess with your discipleship because it will say, follow Jesus and. But the preserved gospel will look at you and say, follow me 
me being Christ alone, the same one who saved you. All of this, we study it so that we might be freed from whatever preferential gospel we'd be tempted to follow and to be rooted more deeply in the preserved gospel of Jesus Christ. And to do this, we follow the pattern of Paul. Just as he returned to the gospel and is writing to the churches over and over and over, so too do we come back to the preserved gospel of Jesus Christ over and over and over and over. Now I just want you to go somewhere with me for a second. As I was thinking about this, I wondered if there were times in Paul's preaching or in Paul's writing where people might have said, Paul, why do you just preach the gospel and go back to the gospel over and over and over? Paul, when are we going to get to like the deep stuff. I think Paul might have said that there is no cistern so shallow as the gospel that all can come and drink fully of it, and there is no sea as deep as the gospel that none will ever explore the fullness of its depths. Please don't hear what I'm saying up here in a moment. While knowledge is not the only metric of growth, it is a helpful one. And so I want you to hear, I do think we should go deep and study theology. I do think you should read good books by dead men and women who were faithful to Jesus and labored to write theological tomes that have stood the test of time. But my hope is that you do not become more educated than you are devoted to the gospel. As many have. Please know that all study of God and theology is rooted in, continues in, and ends with the gospel. There is no deeper depth to explore and no higher peak to attain to, but a fuller, firmer, stronger understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been preserved for you. If you'd permit me to get personal, Doxa, if you were to hear my prayer as we've been going through this series, and even in some way for the last year and a half, I think that if you were to read them or hear them, they might have sounded very nervous to you. Because they have been. I've brought my nervousness to God, my nervousness that people might grow bored of the gospel and think that there is something deeper to attain to than Christ and Him crucified. Because that pattern of thought, that ideology of seeking something deeper or different, more than the gospel, That is what opens up the door for a preferential gospel to take root in your life, to enslave you to itself. Here's a question I've been incapable of shaking as I've thought about this text for the last few weeks. How could someone start to fall into another gospel? Maybe you need to make it a little more personal. How could I start to fall into another gospel? How does this happen? I think there's a number of answers, but the one I want to give you and spend our last few minutes here talking about is is this. How does it happen? They grow numb to Jesus. Maybe to keep it personal, you grow numb to Jesus. Jesus becomes casual and familiar to you. And eventually something else takes the place that he once had. Something else fills the space that was once completely dedicated to him. Something else becomes more important to you than Jesus. Something else takes your attention, captures your affection, and comes out in the actions of your life. When you think to talk about Jesus, you immediately pivot to that other thing. There's an additional extra that consumes your heart and your mind, and that preference takes up more of your thought and conversation than Jesus does. And over time, you grow numb to Jesus because you love that thing more than you love him. And it's probably whatever you just felt defensive about as I said that. How do you become numb to Jesus? Rarely is it one choice. 
one big moment. It's a thousand cuts, a thousand compromises, a thousand moments. Over time, you make a million little decisions that form your life to be and say one thing. There is something else that I want more than Jesus. There's something else that I love more than I love Jesus. There's something else that I worship more fully than I worship Jesus. Sounds like someone saying, yeah, I get Jesus, but have you heard about blank? And you organize your life around that instead of organizing your life around the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And then Jesus becomes pet to your preference. You marginalize him into being your mascot. You shrink Jesus and you make him fit into your preference, which I need you to know is massively offensive to Jesus. Jesus does not fit into your life because Jesus doesn't fit into anything, Doxa. How on earth could the one who by all things are held together and in whom all things consist fit into anything? He doesn't fit into anything. Everything fits into him. And if it doesn't fit with him, then it doesn't fit. When you love something more than Jesus, you will grow numb to him over time. And when you grow numb, you are wide open to finding yourself in another gospel because you need something to fill that space. Stuff, culture, control, whatever it is. So how do we not grow numb to Jesus? What do we need? We need to consciously engage with the process that begins the moment we start following Jesus and continues to our very last breath. We need to be sanctified as disciples of Jesus. We, we teach this more fully in our foundations class. You should go to foundations if you haven't done that. Uh, Nate does a great job leading that class. Uh, but sanctification is this idea of becoming holy or becoming more like Jesus. Even more literally, to sanctify is this idea of cutting away. That there's parts of your life that are causing you to be numb to Jesus that you actually get to see cut away, cut off, separated so that you might be more holy as you live more like Jesus. Let me say it a different way. Uh, Where there is a risk of you growing numb to Jesus, the process of sanctification is the process of you becoming more and more sensitive to him. There is a counterformational process that you enter into as you actively cooperate with the Spirit of God to become more like Jesus. Later in Galatians, Paul's going to talk about this idea of sanctification as living in step with the Spirit, having a same pagedness with Jesus by walking in the Spirit. Here, you are not numb to Him, but rather you are more and more sanctified more and more sensitive to him. This is sanctification. You see him more. You know him more. You love him more. You want him and his holiness more. You gladly abandon your sin and die to your preferences because he is more precious to you than anything else is. You're more sensitive to him. You love what he loves. You hate what he hates. And you have no tolerance in your heart for anything to be worshipped other than Jesus Christ himself. You're willing to sacrifice seemingly anything to let go of anything just so you can grow a little closer, a little more sensitive to Jesus. So what could that look like? How can we stay sensitive and not grow numb to Jesus? It looks like this. It looks like us daily rooting our lives in the preserved gospel of Jesus Christ. And to close, I just want to give you three ways right from the text, three practices to do just that. The first thing is to pray the gospel through your life every day. Look at verse 6. From those who seem to be influential, which what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Paul's just such a G for that. I love that. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. He just is. Um, Those, I say, who seemed influential, hear these words, added nothing to me. 
They added nothing to me. This is a callback to the beginning of the text when Paul submitted the gospel he was preaching to the leaders of this church. Paul is saying, they added nothing to what I was preaching. Here's the question that, that I'm curious about for you. Do you know what you're preaching? Like whether you intentionally say it or whether it just comes out through your life, do you know what you're preaching? Before you ever preach the gospel to someone else, by the way, you are preaching it to yourself. So do you know what you are preaching? I don't mean simply in the informational sense. I mean in the soulish sense. Do you know it as if the gospel was the nearest, closest, fullest, most meaningful thing to you? We've often reminded you from this stage to preach the gospel to yourself. And I want to give you a tangential practice to help you do just that. So you might know what you are preaching and do it every day. And it's the practice of praying the gospel through your life. It's my take on what's been called a prayer of examine. Uh, and it's in six parts just like, like this. Uh, first, you start in prayer and you walk through these six movements. You remember the gospel in prayer. You, you return to the rhythms of the gospel, the life, the death, uh, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. You sit with the beauty of that gospel. You remind yourself of it. You thank God for the parts of it that are standing out. You thank God for your need for it that day. You remember the gospel and then you take time to reflect on your day. You actually look back or perhaps look ahead at the day or you look back at the day maybe if it's in the morning that you had yesterday and you walk through that day with the gospel on your mind. Okay, I had this meeting and this conversation and this is how I felt at that stoplight and this and this and this. It's slow and it takes time and as you do that you will see sin that you need to repent of. And you are able to repent of it because of the gospel that you have remembered, that you can turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. You will also then be able to see moments where you can rejoice and thank God because you're seeing his grace at work in your life. Then in light of that, in light of your repentance and your rejoicing and from your life of reflecting in the gospel, you can actually make your request known to God. Out of that, God, what do I need? God, this is what I need. You bring your need to him. And then you take some time at the end to rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This could take you two minutes. This could take you two hours. But I wonder what God could do in you and through you as you pray this gospel through your life every day how it would root you deeply in the preserved gospel of Jesus Christ, to know what you are preaching to others and what you are preaching to yourself. Which actually brings me to the next practice to root yourself in the preserved gospel, to share the gospel with the people you've been entrusted with in the places that you've been established. Verse 7, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the uncircumcised, worked also through me, through mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, who's Peter, and John, uh, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and I, so that we, and that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul had been entrusted with the gospel for the Gentiles. That would be the people he'd be around and the place he would establish himself and establish churches. Grace was given to him, verse 9, to this end. And empowering grace, doxa, has been given to you by Jesus to share the gospel with the people you have been entrusted with and the places you have been established. So where is that? It's wherever you are. Who is that? It's whoever's around you. And here is your confidence. It's right there in verse 8. That the same God who worked through Peter is the same God who worked through Paul and is the same God who will work through you. You share the gospel with others through word, certainly, never less than this, but also 
through deed, which brings me to my third practice to root you in the gospel, which is to remember the poor. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is righteousness and justice on display. It's will root us in the preserved gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important first because it's modeled all over Jesus' life. Jesus often positioned himself to be around the poor and to move towards them. So as a part of us becoming more like Christ that we claim has saved us, we care for the poor just as he did. We model our lifestyles after that of our Savior. Second, this is actually grace on display in your life. You don't require the poor to deserve your care. You simply give it. Just as you were not required, Christian, to prove that you deserved God's care, but rather he simply gave it to you graciously through Christ. There is a rooting formational principle at play here, and it's this, that what we do reminds us of who we are. Jenna, you can go ahead and come up. When you move towards the poor and around you to care for them, it's a unique reminder as you give of yourself for them that you were once poor in spirit and Christ gave of himself for you. When you were in need of someone to save you, Jesus met your need through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. When you were spiritually homeless, Jesus prepared a home for you with his Father. When you were hungry and thirsty for salvation, Jesus satisfied you with his salvation and invited you to drink deeply of his grace. Yes, as a model of Jesus' life, we remember the poor, but also so we might remember the gospel, we remember and care for the poor. We were hungry and thirsty, and Jesus fed and gave us drink. Or as symbolized through communion, we received his broken body, and we received his shed blood for our salvation, which we remember through the bread and the cup of communion, which is what I'm going to invite you to do right now to remember the body of Christ broken and the blood of Christ shed as we are reminded of and rooted in the preserved gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as a note, if you're not a Christian, it makes no sense for you to take communion. In fact, I'm asking you not to. This isn't for you. It's not because I'm withholding it from you. It's because you're actually withholding it from yourself. You've not trusted in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus for your salvation, so you would be remembering nothing for yourself. But this morning, you could choose to follow Jesus. This morning, you could trust in the one who died the death that you deserve and rose again for your salvation. If you would put your trust in him, you'd repent of your sin and trust him as Lord and Savior. If you did that, the table would be wide open for you. To prepare us for communion, I want to take these next moments to remember the gospel, to give you space to reflect. In fact, I'll walk you through the examine we just looked at briefly. And then as we sing, you're welcome to come to the table in any of the four corners of the room, take communion, and then to rejoice with song because the preserved gospel has come to you, that you might root yourself all the more fully in it. So I want to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads, and we're just going to walk through this briefly. I want to give you a moment just right now on your own to remember the gospel. Walk through the rhythms of grace, sing in the life of Jesus.
the gospel in mind, I want you to reflect on your day. Maybe even just from this morning, there's enough. Maybe this week. As you reflect on your day, perhaps there's sin you know you need to repent of. Perhaps there's moments of grace that you need to take time to actually rejoice in. come to the forefront. So request of God, ask him for what you need. Maybe a preference has come up that's been exposed. Ask him to help you have the strength to set it aside, to die to that thing so that you might not grow numb to Jesus. Now take a moment rest in the gospel to almost relax into the goodness of God to rest in the reality that while you couldn't save yourself there is a God who considered it light work to only save one nation and so he sent his son so that you might be saved to do what you could never do you now have full rest in him there is no striving for salvation anymore. Christ has done all that's necessary. So you can rest in the gospel. Jesus, we are so grateful for your gospel. Thank you for preserving it for us. Thank you for living the life we never could and dying the death that we deserved and rising again so that we might have union with you. I ask that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that you would reveal yourself in a potent way to them even now. And God, for the Christians, that as we take communion, that we would remember and be rooted once again in this preserved gospel. God, keep a preferential gospel far from us. Protect us, please. We love you. We're grateful for you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.